Hi, and welcome to this episode of Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights, CGHR for short, here at the University of Cambridge. My name is Matt Mahmoudi, and I'll be your host on today's show. Today, we're discussing how we can be better allies in advancing LGBT plus rights. On June 26, 2015, the United States Supreme Court ruled that state-level bans on same-sex marriage are unconstitutional. And although this moment marked a significant historic recognition of the plight and rights of people of LGBT plus status, this conversation is by no means over. There is also much debate over whether Western countries that have made some advances in LGBT plus rights can or should support LGBT plus movements in other countries. With me today to discuss these issues is Sal Shah, a graduate student in politics and international relations. I'm also joined by regular panelists Eva Milne and Scott Novak. Welcome, guys. I'm always in awe about the diverse experiences of our panel and the never-ending conversations we're able to have in terms of human rights issues. I also know the panel identifies as LGBT+, and so I think it would be wonderful if we could start this conversation by positioning it in a personal context. Where are we today with the state of LGBT rights? So I think in the United States, at least, where I'm from, there was obviously a huge celebration after marriage equality was passed. Um, People were very, very excited about that. So I should go back a little bit and say half of my family or there's a good portion of my family that voted for Trump and there's a good portion um, that voted independent or for Hillary Clinton. And in my family has been very accepting of me. I came out to them as gay, as did my brother, who's a year younger than me, um, a few years ago, back, well, back when we were in high school. And of course there was some transition in terms of like, you know, we had some difficult moving conversations, but in the end, both my parents and my extended family accepted us fully for who we are. Um, However, so the people who voted for Trump in my family would say to me, I'd say, "How how could you like vote for this man who his entire cabinet is, he's trying to appoint some of the most anti-gay politicians in the United States. So how can you vote for a man like this when very possibly my rights and the rights of other LGBT people are threatened by these types of people coming into power? And they would say, he's not gonna do any of that. He's Trump has said he's a supporter of the LGBT community. Um, and we, you, know, you guys have marriage equality now. There's nothing, um, there's nothing that the Republicans can do anymore to the LGBT community. And to me, this just, one is, I think as we're already seeing now, is not true. Um, but two, it, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what many people think of as LGBT rights. And they think marriage equality is, was the be all end all, especially people outside of the LGBT community. Whereas if you're in the LGBT community, you know there's so many more issues um, especially in terms of poverty, in terms of violence, in terms of healthcare that have nothing to do with the right to marriage, but which are affecting LGBT people. Just one example is in Florida, the state where I'm from, you can be fired for being gay or based for due to your sexual orientation or your gender identity. And that is still perfectly legal, even though you have the right to marry people of the same sex in Florida. Eva, would you like to jump in on that? Yeah, um, just really... I've had a contrasting experience to that of Scott. I've been fortunate. Uh, I, I grew up in Scotland. I'm from Scotland. Um, and when eventually I did 
I did recognise that I identified as a bisexual woman. Um, I didn't really even come out as such to anyone. I think there was just a phone call one day with my mum when I just uh, I just said in passing that I was going to a cinema with my girlfriend. And um, um, her, her reaction and my whole family, they, they were really understanding and sweet about it. And um, having spent the last five years in Glasgow, I don't know if there's something to say about the role of urbanisation in the, the good reaction that I had. Um, and certainly in Scotland, we've had marriage equality for some time. Um, so yeah, no, it's just very interesting, Scott, to hear your observations about, about the states. So, so um, I'm coming on the panel as the only queer person of color, but also as a first-generation American. And Scott's story is very interesting um, as a foreground, but I think that if you contextualize it even further, you can see after we passed marriage equality, a lot of the donor money that came in to support LGBTQ plus agendas in America became diverted to the international. And within the international includes a country in which my family originates from, which is India. And I just went to India for the first time over the winter holidays. And it was very interesting for me to see how the West has truly reduced what was a very and what still continues to be a very vibrant culture of diverse gender and sexual orientation, um, which often pronounces itself the most through homosocial relationships as opposed to homosexual relationships. But there is a sort of ease and fluidity to things that actually doesn't exist in even the most urban American contexts. For example, I lived in Washington, D.C. for the past four years. And I think that in a lot of parts of D.C., you would never be caught uh, holding hands with another man. So in that case, when I see in the U.S., in the U.K., this dialogue of what, where do LGBT rights stand today, and you have a watershed moment like Trump or Brexit occur, and there's an increase in hate crimes and violence against LGBT people, and we say well, why don't we have the infrastructure to deal with this? It is truly because of what Scott said. Our metric for success was defined by marriage equality. And since then, a lot of the activism that's occurred to counter these right-wing populist movements has been built off of things like Black Lives Matter or Occupy Wall Street, but not off of something within the identity politics sphere that has to do with LGBTQ plus rights. And that just goes to show the slow decline of dialogue, the slow decline of awareness. And it's really problematic um, for all of us. On that point, Sahil, I remember one of the organizations that I've I worked with and interned with in the past is Equality Florida. It's, it's the state's largest LGBT rights organization. And one thing that they and many other LGBT organizations were very frightened of was that there, with the passage of marriage equality, there would be a backlash. And in the year after marriage equality passed, we saw across the United States the largest number of anti-LGBT legislation proposed on both the state and federal level that we had ever seen before in the United States. Granted, not all of it passed, but some, like the North Carolina bill, the transgender bill, the transgender bathroom bill, that forces transgender females or transgender males to use the bathroom of a 
sex that they do not or of a gender that they do not identify with, um, which is very problematic. So with that backlash at the time when we're I guess it's like at the time when we are seeing an even more concerted effort than before to limit the rights of LGBT people and to commit acts of violence against LGBT people, the organizational capacity, the money has declined for many organizations, as Sahil said. So it seems that there are two forces at play here. One of them is the legitimizing force of things like Trump and Brexit in terms of violent sort of reactions. And the other force is the force that, that makes us think that, okay, now we're in a post-equality era because marriage equality was passed, but actually it's nefarious towards the progress in terms of LGBT rights. I wonder if, Eva, you have a reaction to how that's manifested itself in Europe. I mean, I can't really speak for all of Europe here, but I'm still very aware of that um, the anti-gay propaganda bill in Russia that has endured. Um, but we have a variety of situations across Europe. And I could probably draw on a personal experience of mine. Um, I was teaching with the Council of Europe, which is the regional human rights body for Europe here. Um, I delivered a teaching programme in Vilnius in Lithuania. Um, I've actually delivered it twice now. Um, over the course of the week to students at the university there and the university it's the European Humanity, Humanities University and it was actually exiled from Belarus. Uh, Belarus is not a member of the Council of Europe because it still has the death penalty. Anyway basically uh, students from Belarus came over the border to study law at the university in Lithuania and I was teaching on the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, specifically I gave a seminar on LGBT rights across Europe and um, I was quite sensitive when I delivered this because I was aware that in Belarus, uh, being gay, it's considered a mental illness and there's considerable stigma attached to that. Um, but uh, And also a student who had delivered the lecture the year before me had said that one student in the class had said that, you know, homosexuality is a sin, it should be punished by the death penalty and so on. Um, so actually, I was quite relieved when I did give this seminar that I had quite a positive response from students, most of whom were about 18 or 19 years old. Um, I, I didn't disclose my sexual orientation. I didn't really see that as strictly relevant in the context. But um, anyway, it, it kind of provided some sort of hope for the future. Sahil, you wanted to interject? Yes. So I have a very different experience of Europe because where my family comes from, underwent colonialism. And I think that it's really interesting to see the state of Europe versus the state of post-colonial spaces. And um, as I had previously said, I just went to India, but a lot of the discourse within European or Euro-Atlantic or American spaces is we need to focus on these atrocious colonial-era sodomy laws they don't call it colonial era, they just say sodomy laws, and kill the gays bill in Uganda or what's happening in Russia. And depicting the global south as backwards or reducing it to specific um, pieces of legislation or policies is part of an imperial strategy to continue to want to fix and civilize these populations and it diverts attention and as we've already discussed money energy and time 
away from people that are dying right in front of us, people who are being deported right in front of us. So I find that highly problematic, and I think it's part of a very European Eurocentric logic. When we have conversations within diasporic spaces, I've already said I'm Indian American, oftentimes the same silence around these issues still exists generations after colonialism or generations from being actually in those spaces. So being Indian American, we see the attachment to these values endure, and it's problematic because it disallows us to be able to reconnect with our own pre-colonial history. So pre-colonial India had a lot more acceptance than post-colonial India. And in an environment in which we are just looking for tolerance as opposed to acceptance, it begs the question, should Europe, should the US, should the UK really be touching things that they've already broken? I'd like to jump in there in relation to how Europe and the United States are relating to these post-colonial countries on the policy level. So I think that this, in terms of supporting LGBT rights, I don't think it's necessarily a case of imperialism in terms of the economics, uh, in terms of economic exploitation. I do sincerely believe there are many politicians in these countries who genuinely care about and accept LGBT people and have actively promoted their rights and, you know, sometimes voted on their rights and passed their rights in their home countries. And so I do believe that there is some sincerity about the intentions behind, oh, and we also want to help LGBT people in other countries. It's a fact. There are gay and lesbian and people, LGBT plus people everywhere. Um, they exist in all countries. I believe the intentions are sincere. The problems that I have seen, um, in Ghana, I went, I, I spent four years ago, I lived for, um, a, one, I lived one summer in Ghana with a host family in a rural community. And what was interesting to me, um, the, these issues of LGBT rights came up. I was not going to talk about them for reasons of my personal safety. I did not come out when I was there. But regardless, um, or nevertheless, Obama made a speech, uh, I think in Senegal at that time, this, it was two th in 2013 saying, Africa and African states must accept LGBT rights, um, that that is the way forward, that is the future. However, this got reported on the radio sets that we listened to in the community as the United States will cut foreign aid to African states because they don't accept LGBT people and they're trying to restrict their rights. That was actually false reporting. The, that has not been the United States policy. However, it's understandable why it may have been reported in that way because the United Kingdom has made that threat, um, as have other European countries. Um, I, the Netherlands, Norway, and Denmark cut off millions of dollars in aid to Uganda when they were considering, when they had passed the anti-homosexuality bill, as they titled it. Um, the World Bank also halted a $90 million loan that was going to improve the country's health system. And so this created a backlash, both in places like Uganda and the th 
threat of it, even though it wasn't actually a fact that the United States had made that threat, that threat exists. And people from Ghana to Uganda, even in this rural community, which, you know, did not have running water and electricity, they knew about this stuff. So, and that creates the backlash like we were talking about before. Instead of saying, oh, yes, we will accept LGBT rights since you're cutting our money now. No, people don't like being threatened like that. Instead, their logic was, see, the gays are the problem. They are costing us money. Now all these other countries are threatening us and threatening to cut off the aid. We need to get rid of these gay. We need to get rid of this gay issue. That was the response. And so I think Western countries need to fundamentally rethink how they engage in these with these states um, that they've had a really exploitative history with. As LGBTQ plus people are more pushed into the margins, into the dark, they're also privatized in a way because if the focus is on things that are marketed as anti-gay legislation, then it allows the work and activism that we do to focus on countering said legislation, whereas instead of allowing the people of the global south to be heard and then our agendas acting in solidarity over transnational borders with them because they're determined by them we do something completely different which is feed off of human rights discourse and say lgbtq plus rights are human rights and the backlash that occurs oftentimes creates even more problems than were there in the first place so the United States and all of their allies need to rethink the ways in which we act in solidarity with the global south. It's very interesting to see how these things develop, because if we're talking about fixing our own spaces and own spaces that are oftentimes very violent, you can see how the general political discourse of human rights contrasted with the general political discourse of terrorism being the largest uh, propeller of violence around the world. It's interesting because the more we securitize our borders, the more we are actually not giving acceptance or physical asylum to queer and trans bodies that are marked, inherently marked, and therefore susceptible to violence anywhere that they are. What you're saying, Sahil, um, about, for example, the UK's response to these laws, these colonial relics overseas, um, there's a level of hypocrisy. And we were just talking before we started reporting about an article in The Guardian uh, this week or last week with the headline that um, deported gay Afghans from the UK um, are told to pretend to be straight when they return to Kabul and everything will be fine. Good luck with that. Um, you were telling us about someone you know who's been caught up in this wave of government action and intolerance. Yes, a community organizer in Cambridge, Aisha, who's been living here for 13 years, applied for a work visa recently. And because she was denied the visa, she was sent to Jarlswood, which interestingly is situated in between Cambridge and Oxford University. It's been known to have a lot of reports of abuse, both physical and mental, of those who live there or who are forced to live there. And 
after two weeks of being there, she had applied for asylum based off of being a queer woman of color. And since then, that appeal was denied. So she is reappealing that currently. Actually, her paperwork is due today. But it's been very interesting to see right in front of us, somebody is dealing with these issues. There are detention centers all around the UK, all around Europe, all around these imaginary spaces that we herald freedom and equality in. And it's very problematic because it silences those spaces. So in the colonial era, we would always ask the question, can the subaltern speak? In this case, it's almost as if we now need to ask, do we have the infrastructure to even listen? Because the subaltern is clearly speaking. Aisha has made many appeals to the Cambridge community to ask for money to fund her having a lawyer. She's asked for written letters to support her case. And to be honest, if she is sent back to where she is from, it will be not only grave for herself, but also for our community, because she adds such a specific voice and such a specific lens into these issues that it it would be atrocious that she is not able to still be a part of the community. So I'd like to go circle back to something that Sahil said before in terms of that there has been a backlash when LGBT groups in places like Uganda or Ghana frame LGBT rights as human rights, that does create a reaction and usually a very negative, violent reaction. And of course, maybe this is just because I grew up in the United States with this and I worked, um, I've been active as an LGBT activist uh, since high school. And so I, th- those are the paradigms that I was brought up in as LGBT rights are human rights. If the problem is that a group of or a state a group of people or a state is saying you are less than human you are a monster which is pretty much at the root the universal arguments against lgbt rights in fact many of as we've noted before um these ideas of being against the lgbt community are deeply rooted in the Christian religion, other religions as well. But the reason I know they're so prominent in places like Ghana is because the British came and colonized them and set up missionaries. And now that movement continues today through the American evangelical movement. They fund millions of dollars to African states, for example, on missions. And in these missions, part of what they teach is similar things that they taught in the 1800s, that engaging in same-sex relationships is a sin that will send you to hell. And so it is, in that respect, the same dehumanizing argument. And I think the only way, or one of the only ways, obviously there's many different tactics that you can use, but the what you must assert fundamentally is that you are human, that you are not some monster. And that, I think, is inevitably the framework of human rights. Um, it relies on a kind of human right framework. So, and yes, that people will die, people who use that framework in these countries, as they have in the United States, they will be killed. They will face acts of violence. But if we don't have people across the world who risk their lives to engage in this activism, I have trouble seeing the pathway forward. Um, and of course, that's the difficult thing about this, right? The, the Pew Research Center Global Attitudes Project 
did a study around the time that I was, that came out shortly um, around the time that I was in Ghana four years ago, saying that 98% of Ghanaians think homosexuality is morally unacceptable. And Ghana was the most homophobic country on the list, surpassing Uganda's 93%, Nigeria's 85%, and Russia's 72%. And so when you're in spaces like any of those countries, you know, I think, yes, there will be a backlash, but that does not negate um, a human rights framework for these issues necessarily. And so I, I can see both sides. Um, I read last night that when uh, Gambia imposed life imprisonment in 2015 for anyone found to be engaging in LGBT relations, um, the EU cut $186 million in aid and the US removed itself from a, a trade agreement. And the Gambian president, in response to those, to those measures, stated that we will rather die than be colonized twice. So Sahil, I'm, I'm just, I want to know, what do you think is the solution? Where is the line between cultural imperialism and the Western campaign to try and secure or impo impose um, their values and ideas of freedom on the rest of the world? I think that human rights discourse is inherently ignorant because it fails to listen to those that they're trying to save. And the logic behind trying to say that the third world or the global south has accepted human rights as the framework to base their activism on is simply a logic of human rights discourse itself, which is to say that we have gone and intervened and our way of constructing a future has prevailed when in reality human rights efforts in a lot of ways has created more ethnocentric ideas more ethno-racial domination more abuses against women or people who are gender non-conforming or people who are part of the queer community and if we're not basing our the way that we promote activism off of evidence, we're simply basing it off of an idealized norm that simply doesn't work in a lot of the spaces that we're trying to implement it in. And on that note, I think that specifically looking at the global south, there are ways that we can help those people resist their governments. But the first requirement is, is that they themselves let us know how they want it to be done. And if that is not occurring, then what human rights have you given that person? What agency have you given their voice? Because if you really think about it, what it comes down to is, is that you are offering human rights to someone, political rights to someone. But if they don't have a state or an agent to claim those rights from, you are severely misinformed and there is a gap in your thinking because you're trying to create a world that doesn't have the correct intermediaries. So there needs to be a restructuring of how we really think about these things because it is very defined by the West and the way that human rights projects itself is racist, it's patriarchal and ethnocentric and it victimizes the people that we're trying to save. I, I think Sahil and I are actually in agreement in this point as when it comes to how the human rights framework has operated in terms of international relations, as we've been talking about, I think, throughout this episode, it is extremely problematic. Um, and, and just to make a distinction, 
a distinction. What I was referencing before is a human rights philosophy and just asserting that we are human is of course different from how states have taken this, uh, their own versions of human rights framework. So I think the fundamental part, which I think would, you would agree with this, like right. the I am human part, that's essential to all these mu movements given the way that the way in which they're attacked has been universal in, a, in one sense, in its tactics, in, in the opposition's tactics. Regarding the point that I think we start, I would just echo Sahil's statement saying that we do start by listening to the LGBT leaders because they do exist in these countries who are on the ground having to deal with their own daily reality um, and listening to them. And that's something that did not happen when when all these um, European countries were cutting foreign aid to Uganda. So when that was being discussed, um, LGBT leaders across Africa were horrified and they wrote an open letter to David, they wrote an open letter to David Cameron saying that such cuts would pose, quote, the real risk of a serious backlash against the LGBT community. And that also, and this is another quote from the letter, um, a cut in aid will have an impact on everyone and more so on the populations that are, that are already vulnerable and whose access to health and other services are already limited, such as the LGBT community. And so, yeah, I, yeah. That just speaks to the need to actually listen to the people in these countries. I think the debate thus far has been very much about how we can be pragmatic about advancing LGBT rights um, in the face of a human rights dialogue, which has been largely one-sided, or at least it has been uh, very much imposed from one side, um, to uh, sort of uh, advance Sahel's point further and to get to the crux of the issue, really the United Nations framework for human rights itself is is flawed, right, on several accounts. One is that it's not being able to bypass a monolith of sovereignty in the first place means that thinking that you can just go ahead and, and talk about LGBT rights being human rights and this is how you go about implementing them is fundamentally uh, naive, right? And so we need to uh, change that and we need to think about bottom-up approaches to that. And I think that's very much what you're, what you're proposing here as well. And, you know, in being too under-resourced to establish, for example, national human rights commissions, which is also one of the remits of the United Nations, um, we are, again, foregoing the opportunity to enable a bottom-up approach to holding governments domestically to account on human rights and LGBT rights abuses. So ideally, what you'd have is a government which could fund NHRIs, national human rights institutions, um, which could then go and support um, violations. Sorry, go ahead. And this is so important because a lot of the violence that our communities are experiencing is anecdotal. And you can't tell me that the current reported levels of violence against trans women or trans women of color in particular, all the evidence is there because oftentimes the police or any agency that is part and parcel of the government is going to misgender that person. So we need to be preserving not only the data, but also the more qualitative narratives of what has been happening, both in terms of the oppression, but also the resistance. Because if we don't have an archive of the what we have been doing in order to resist these, whether imperialist or neo-imperialist 
ideas and institutions, then we're just going to fall into an echo chamber in which we don't actually progress. And we just keep recreating the same thing as opposed to thinking of new things. And being queer means to be inherently creative. So this sort of idea of teaching conformity, teaching discipline, it really reverberates through our thinking and it kills our imagination. So it, we really need to make sure that we take a step back often and realize that learning is also a part of all of it. So before segueing into the uh, main question of today and the second part of the conversation, I just want to bring a little bit of hope to the conversation. There's a case of an organization called Global Rights Nigeria um, who are really interesting in the sense that they uh, essentially evade the current framework that exists within Nigeria to uh, report on human rights violations, but instead they actively go out to communities and uh, sort of tell them and inform them about the, the structures that exist, the kind of um, evidence that you would need in order for a, a case to hold in court, and they empower them to write their own reports. So you have small rural communities who effectively are starting to do their own human rights reporting, um, their own uh, reporting of LGBT violence, which is uh, part a particularly pertinent issue in these areas. And so that, that obviously brings a little bit of hope when you see these kind of bottom bottom-up approaches happening. I'd like to preface the next section of this debate with an extract from Angela Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle, where she mentions, quote, I think that the movements, feminist movements, other movements are most powerful when they begin to affect the vision and perspective of those who do not necessarily associate themselves with those movements. Now, with that in mind, how do people from different LGBT contexts and struggles, as well as people from the outside, effectively resist and contest ongoing atrocities and inequalities? You know, I think a mistake that liberal-minded people have made in general, and also these policies that cut foreign aid to back countries they obviously view as like violating human rights and backwards, I think the mistake that they make is that they do not, they're not engaging people in dialogue about these issues, and they're not engaging states in dialogue about these issues. If I were to go to one of my family members and say, you are a bigot, you are homophobic, you are evil, I'm going, and if they were, and if they were on, like, if I was giving them health care and saying, you are so evil, I'm no longer going to provide you with health care because you do not accept me as a gay man. I doubt that that would get them to change their minds. That is a very isolatory tactic. And I think what, what moves people in my experience, what has changed the views of people of my family, what has changed the views of some people I knew in Ghana, um, is that you see them as a human being. You see, you know, you take them as they are because we all have biases um, that are a product of the environment that we had brought up in. And so this, I, this feeling, I think that comes sometimes comes along with people who talk about human rights that like, oh, we're so educated and superior, just morally superior. That sense of moral superiority, I think is really toxic if you're engaged, if you're trying to change people's minds who disagree with you. And so meet people where they are engage in a dialogue of mutual respect if you are in a position to do that and if you feel comfortable doing that. And that is how people's minds change. And that is how people, it opens up the possibility that just like you acknowledge their humanity and acknowledge them as more than this homophobic bigot, um, that opens up the possibility of then they recognizing your humanity 
And I know that's very, that may be very idealized and that does not always work out in practice, but, um, you know, I didn't think some people would accept me before in the United States and then I ended up doing that. And then in Ghana, although I said I did not come out while I was there because that would have been, that would have been dangerous. Um, after I went home, I became Facebook friends with um, some of the community members and they found out I was gay. And I asked if like how they felt about that. And one of them said, um, this wasn't all of them, but you know, this was one person's mind who was changed. They said, you, you know, seeing you, knowing that you're gay and that you're not some monster changed my perspective, not of just LGBT people, but also of all these different groups that are often marginalized. The disabled is, I think, one that he referenced. But so it's, it, you recognize, once you recognize um, the patterns of discrimination or discriminatory thought within yourself, you're then, I think, able to move beyond other types of biases that you have as well. So I'm going to take it down to a biopolitical level and just say, if you're a privileged body, consider taking up less space. So the fact that in America and in the Euro-Atlantic community, the white, cisgender, queer male has been the center of our entire agenda goes to show that we're not being inclusive, we're not being intersectional. Until the main image of the LGBTQ plus rights movement is, in my opinion, the trans woman of color, you're never going to really get at intersectionality in a way that gives ample space to those who are silenced the most. And it's very problematic because you see how pervasive capitalism and Western norms are when everything is associated with life and death, right? So gay male populations are reduced to the AIDS pandemic, death. Then on the flip side, you have gay males being associated with marriage and the nuclear family and procreation and assimilation. And this sort of cycle just recontinues itself while people are actually dying. And oftentimes, the people that are dying are not the white gay males that are so prominent in the media, are so prominent in our daily lives as being sort of the emblem of the movement. So that's one thing. And, you know, that's just common sense of how we structure our society. But from my perspective, as I'm not a white male, I'm a middle, upper class, upper caste, also uh, Indian American, I have to challenge the ways in which my privilege has oppressed black people and therefore also black queers. And by doing so, it goes to show that I truly do need my own space to discuss with other people that have the same power and privilege of how we are going to rebalance or take that into consideration when we personally move forward. So I think that we need to give space specifically to specific diasporas that have queer members, to specific groupings uh, outside of this intersectional space, and then convene together. And it's not only intersectional, but also we need it to be intergenerational. There's so much to be learned from the past movements and struggles um, in any context and 
as I already said, a lot of the evidence of resistance is anecdotal. And like, if we don't have an archive of it, or if we have no connection to it, all of that fight and perseverance and resilience will go to waste because we will lose whatever momentum they've gained for all of us in the present. Yeah, I, I think um, just to reiterate what the boys have said, for me, it's it's obviously important to be an ally outside the community, but definitely within the LGBT community itself. And um, I'd like to recall uh, an, an example, I think it was a couple of summers ago, or whenever the last Olympics was, um, of Castor Semenya. And she was an Olympian from South Africa who identified as intersex. Um, and this was one of the most high-profile platforms for awareness of discrimination based uh, faced by intersex individuals. And it's a great shame that ultimately it turned into a major smear campaign against a woman purported to have an unfair advantage over other competitors, ironically, who came from much richer and more developed countries than Castor. Um, and there was quite a lot of disagreement uh, between me and my friends about... Um, whether Castor could, could compete or not and I don't know what anyone else's opinion on that front is but I think it's a shame that the um, transparency for intersex people there and the discrimination they face was effectively sidelined and um, so for me it's very important for people within my own minority or within the LGBT plus collective to support other members of, of our collective. And I think that goes to the core of what Sahil is saying as well, which is the relative privileges. We need to be aware of the relative privileges that we have. And even if we are an oppressed group, it's important to recognize our struggle in the struggles of others. Um, it's a continuum, um, but also a continuum that serves as uh, more severe on one end than the other. So just see, saying that I have uh, experienced some sort of oppression period and therefore I am comparing that oppression in absolute terms with other oppressions and saying, oh, why should my sort of oppression be worth less than that? That is not a valid argument. And what it does is it absolves people of their own power and privilege to make change and it absolves them of a responsibility to reflect and be more critical of themselves. Just because you're being oppressed doesn't mean that you are not oppressing someone else. So this idea that we need to all come together, be intersectional, needs to come after we also, within our own more specific communities, are able to reflect on our histories, which could be very fruitful, and then also on how we're currently sort of conceptualizing the way that we talk about these issues. Absolutely. As you both were talking, I was thinking of like the movie Moonlight, yeah. And why exactly? I still haven't seen it. Oh, so good. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. Well, Great for movie. me, as you know, someone who, in terms of like the American LGBT movement, it is absolutely true. The white gay male, which I fall into that category, is the most like privileged category. That's where most of the funding for marriage equalities come from. That's where what groups like the Human Rights Campaign have had problems in the past with them over-representing that particular type of person at the expense of other people and other issues in terms of their focus. Um, so with the movie Moonlight, what that did, this is this is not just on the legislative level or like in data and archives, it's also the culture that we live in is also a type of archive and that these 
stories from queer people of color are not something that is dominant. Like most LGBT films of the past like decade or two are always like two usually white men who or fall two beautiful or females, two yeah like blue is the warmest color and then i don't know how it is in i haven't or one white one brown or yeah or that and then one of them dies and it's like or they're sad. fetishized and they're both and they're always like like upper middle class um they're usually never Cis. both black they're never cisgender they're never poor they're never they, there's always some like also some like sex scene of some sort and in moonlight that wasn't even like that it just it it i guess like it violated the norms of like what the mate what the predominant cultural representation of the lgbt movement has been and it did it in an incredibly artistic way and that that was i don't know and it was like and it, it made me very much aware of that space of privilege that i have because i was like you know, obviously that's the definition of privilege. It's not something that you have to think about every day or that you feel you feel imposed upon because you have that privilege, you have that representation. And just for me growing up, like those, you know, I think of like the series Queer as Folk was like an important like series to watch as I was like struggling with my own identity issues. And if I was a black gay man living in Miami like I would not have that representation in the media as I was growing up and that's that's a really scary troubling thought are you telling me that America is not the wonder bread sandwich plastered with honey with a glass of milk on the side you know it's just shocking to me yeah. that people think that everything is so glorious and great when in reality, there's just so much going on in front of our eyes that is just violating the same human rights discourse that we project onto the rest of the world. Truly, truly fix your own self. Look in the mirror, take a look. You know, in the era of tech especially, I think that there is this, within queer spaces, increase in depression and loneliness and marketing of the self as being a lot happier than you actually are. And it's problematic because so much time is invested in that. You know, I think that a recent statistic came out that the average user of the app Grindr spends 90 minutes a day on the app. If you think what 90 minutes a day of activism for trans women of color who are dying on the streets of New York City, which is being heralded as one of the most liberal spaces in America today, could do for those people you would not be doing that you know there's just this absence of the truth thank you for joining us for another episode of declarations We'd love to hear any thoughts and feedback you have about this episode, so please tweet us at DeclarationsPod on Twitter and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast if you like to contact us. We would also love if you took a few seconds to rate us on iTunes. We'll be taking a short break over the next month, but do tune in for some of our favorite episodes which we'll be rebroadcasting as we prepare for the next season. Thank you for joining us. This is Declarations.
Did you like the Wonder Bread sandwich? Yeah, that was beautiful. Yeah. I was like, but but Trump won, so it is one. Yeah. If, is it if this Wonder Bread is white? Yeah. Not definitely not whole sorry, wheat because with, it's way too orange. With but, you know obviously right. a fully cooked yeah. oh, steak on top yeah. and ketchup. Yeah. Of course, with ketchup. You know, yeah. I don't eat steak. Like I don't, I've never had. So yeah. I mean, it seems to me that it's just you would never put ketchup with this no, that's not, not even like a weird craving that's apparently according to oh. leaks he burns the shit out of the steak and then he puts ketchup on it 